Hello again and welcome back to the Quantum Podcast, people of the internet. My name is Ethan Morland and I aim to speak to high performers about the hows and the whys behind what they do and create bite-sized lessons for those who are listening. On episode 14 of the Quantum Podcast, I have on adventurer Charlie Walker. Charlie has spent over 10 years on expeditions all around the world, ranging from a four and a half year bike ride to different points of Europe, Asia and Africa to traveling the length of the Eurasia border by skiing, walking, kayaking, the everything. The guy has been and seen been everywhere and seen a lot. Most recently last year, Charlie found himself heavily in the news due to being arrested in Russia and spending some time in a Russian prison. During the time of Charlie's expedition across Siberia, the Russian war broke out. And as a result, the police followed him and eventually wrongfully accused him of being a journalist and a spy. You'll hear about this throughout the episode and there's so many stories and so many lessons from his different expeditions that he's done over the years. So I hope you enjoy it. And remember to check Charlie's links in the description below. Um, He has two books out at the minute, so check them out and also follow him on all platforms. Also, please make sure to share the podcast with anyone who may be interested as I want to grow the podcast as large as possible and without your help, I can't do that. So please remember to like, subscribe and share the podcast wherever possible. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Okay, so the first question I wanted to ask you, Charlie, was what possesses someone to do the kind of challenges that you do? Uh, it's a good question and uh, always quite a difficult one to answer, largely because there's no single answer. It's kind of a, uh, a number of different things. But I guess the main, the key driving factor is just curiosity. I'm really, really interested to know more about some of the you know parts of the world that we'd be perhaps less likely to visit in day-to-day life or hear about or see um, anywhere really. Um, but that's kind of twinned with, uh, a desire to write, um, you know, writing is, is my great love and, you know, traveling gives you lots of interesting things to write about. And on top of that, there's certainly quite an element of, um, I mean, you could call it masochism, but I basically enjoy to kind of see what I'm capable of. So the difficult way in which I choose to get to the places I try to get to is because I'm sort of interested to see if I'm able to, you know, to walk for that far or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. So you were at university in Newcastle, weren't you? So what what was it that led you to go, right, instead of going for, you know, the career in maybe an office or you know the job that everyone maybe thinks is the right job to actually going and spending four and a half years on a bike cycling from Europe to Asia to Africa um well I don't think I was ever kind of uh against the idea of what what you might call quote-unquote a regular office job and indeed you know I spend plenty of my time at my desk here kind of writing or answering emails or doing you know the things the kind of you know seemingly vanilla stuff that we all had to do as part of you know jobs um but it was more that I also didn't feel any sense of I, I didn't feel drawn to uh that kind of life so it wasn't like I was railing against it and trying to sort of get away from that or avoid that it just it frankly didn't particularly cross my mind I always kind of wanted to 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 be 
living a slightly more active life and to to get around and when i was at uni i um each year i kind of saved up um you know my sort of meager pennies uh, leftover scraps of student loans um, back when university didn't break the bank for the next 40 years um, and you know would go somewhere each summer by myself usually um, and just spend a bit of time kind of backpacking around or later cycling and doing that just slowly kind of opened my eyes to the possibility of kind of slow human-powered overland travel and that kind of set the uh, set the train in motion what point was it then that this idea of cycling the th- it's the three capes of europe asia and africa wasn't it yeah so what oh, what point did that come to fruition and did you actually think it was ever going to be possible to do it um yeah i first came up with that idea the summer after leaving university i flew to beijing uh, and took a bicycle and my flight out was from uh, Ulaanbaatar in uh, Mongolia. So I, I took my bike and the plan was to cycle across the Gobi Desert. It's not that far, it's about a thousand miles. Um, so kind of, you know, a little bit further than a Land's End John O'Groats uh, trip, I guess. Um, it only took a couple of weeks and much of it I actually didn't <laughs> love you know it was it was really hot I had broken my wrist a couple of weeks before starting I'd torn a muscle in my leg uh, another couple of weeks before that so I wasn't in great shape uh, about half of it was off-road um, there wasn't there is now uh, a road the whole way across but back then from the Mongolian border to the Mongolian capital was almost no roads at all it was just tracks across the desert uh and it was hot and i ran out of water at one point and i you know i frankly struggled i wasn't fit i wasn't ready for it but while doing that trip i think i got uh, an inkling of the beauty of cycle travel and that is that it forces you to go slowly and you spend time in those unusual little places in between you know in the in the gobi in mongolia for instance that would be uh, a small kind of rarely used railway stop where occasionally a sort of iron ore train might drop off a bag of rice for the two families who live there for seemingly no reason um and you'd never you know you'd never meet those people you'd never come across them if you were on a train there is a train track across the desert if you were on a train or if you were flying from a to b or even in a vehicle you you know you just blast straight past uh and those little encounters those interactions um as well as the sort of sublime experience of camping out under you know beautiful desert skyscapes uh you know star studded skies without a tent sleeping outdoors and just enjoying all that and sort of having that space and peace and sort of solitude tranquility to yourself uh put all those together and i thought yeah that seems like a good idea uh and instead of flying back from mongolia in the end i and i uh sort of volunteered to drive a car back someone had done the mongol rally which i think might still happen but a few hundred europeans used to drive out to mongolia each year in battered cars and then sort of give their cars to a charity at the other end and some friends of mine happened to do it that same summer and i was in mongolia when they finished and their car was too battered and the charity just wouldn't accept it so you have this undrivable car that had to be got out of mongolia for sort of permit passport reasons the only borders are china where you can't take a car and russia where if you take a car you have to take it out And the next border from Russia, where you don't require a complicated visa back then, was uh, Latvia. 
So, you know, once you've driven 4,000 miles across Russia, you might as well do the last bit. So I drove a car all the way back. And during that drive, while sleeping in the forest one night uh, with a little campfire and a bottle of Chinggis Khan black vodka, um, I started scribbling a little line on a world map. And that became the basis of this trip that I, a year later, set off on. And once, going back to your original question, once I devised the idea, I sort of had no doubt that I was going to do it. Um, I think by that point, for a few years, I've been building up to the idea of one day I'm going to do some sort of grand adventure, like an odyssey. Um, and it all just, in my mind, just fell into place. This will be it. And frankly, what it was didn't really matter that much. That was kind of arbitrary. It was just the means to the end of spending all that time out in the world for, you know, pennies. You know, cycle touring is incredibly cheap. Yeah, you can live off a pound or two a day if you want to. Um, so yeah, put all that together and that was it. What sort of preparation goes into planning for four and a half years on the road on your own? Uh, well, counterintuitively very little. Um, and I don't say that flippantly. I say that because, I mean, what plans do, does anyone have in place for the next four, four and a half years? Very little, frankly. Um, we can't, it's very hard to plan that far ahead. I mean, I admire people who are able to have a plan in place for that far, but if you've got a plan that's that long, um, you've got to be flexible with it anyway. So with that trip, I basically planned the sense of the route, but not the specifics, because I just didn't know what would take my fancy nearer the time, also what would be um, feasible. You know, the geopolitics of the world changes so much every four or five years. Um, for example, the Arab Spring began about nine months after I started this trip. And so what I had assumed would be a nice, easy passage, interesting passage through Syria, uh, Lebanon, um, Israel into Egypt, ended up having to be a boat across the Med from Turkey to Egypt because, you know, Syria was you know, at war, still is really. Um, and so I really didn't plan that much. I didn't train that much. I My main sort of goals were to save money. Um, and so I kind of dedicated my time to working, trying to trying to get some uh, get some little sort of meager budget together, um, and then set off. And the rest will kind of take care of itself. You know, as the trip unfolds, you're going to come across all sorts of challenges and forks in the road and you know obstacles. But you're better off just arriving. At, the best way to overcome those things is to arrive at them first, as opposed to trying to foresee all sorts of different you know, eventualities that might never uh, materialize. So the trip itself, obviously, being four and a half years, did you save all the money beforehand and then just go and do it? Or did you? was there like stages where you made a little bit of money here, a little bit of money there? Um, I saved uh, £9,000 um, before I left and I managed to I sort of <laughs> finagled another 3000 through some sponsorship from a tea company. Um, who I think I did better in that bargain than they did, uh, frankly. But um, with that twelve thousand pounds, that I strung that out for the for the duration. I made the odd little kind of bit here and there from selling articles, a couple of photos. But basically, that was the that was the budget. Yeah, because to live on you know a cute, well twelve thousand pound here or there for four years. Is pretty like even being in you know Af in remote parts of Africa and Asia because you can live quite cheap there. But I find I think it's got it's still going to be quite hard to live off that given you know the time period three thousand pound a year. Mm. 
it's yeah i mean it, it it's sort of tricky and at the same time if you get yourself into the right sort of headspace as to your relationship with money and what's important it becomes quite easy and it frankly becomes down to for how long are you happy to forego the kind of frills that we enjoy in our lives so if you take um rent out of the equation life can be quite cheap you know if you're living in a tent and rarely paying for any accommodation if you're buying food from small markets in the developing world where it's quite cheap um if you're happy to not go and drink six beers um once or twice or three times a week or whatever uh and maybe just store that up for like every couple of months when you're somewhere cheap have a few beers um then you know if you strip away all those things and you're happy to just kind of remain satisfied with you know stringing out the shoestring budget that you do have on those basic you know food essentially was the only outlay and of course visas uh which cost quite a lot as it turns out over the years um but if you're happy to to you know go without all those things then actually you can live very cheaply you went to over 60 countries during this four and a half year trip and africa gets this we have this idea of what africa is and how it's a very dangerous place and you know, you, you're likely to get robbed or something bad is going to happen when you're there. What's your perception of it now that you've traveled basically from the, you know, northeast of Africa to the most southern point of Africa? Um, I suppose the main thing is Africa is not one thing. It's so many different things. And uh, I mean, you can bring general statistics about the continent into play and say that you probably are statistically more likely to get robbed as a foreigner or a tourist in Africa than you are in your day-to-day -day life in Western Europe for sake of you know for ease of argument um, but you're also probably more likely to have some total stranger who you've never met just out of nowhere just say hey uh, you know what can I do to help or why don't you stay in my home tonight which you know it doesn't happen a great deal in the UK in my experience that uh, you're walking on the street and someone says hey come come and come and stay in my house for, for two nights um, so that you know there are those kind of those extremes but I mean country to country the place varies so much it's it's not a homogenous continent um, you know I in Ethiopia, for example, people hurled stones at me in the villages. And yet at the same time, during that same visit, people would still invite me into their homes. In the DRC, which is often thought to be one of Africa's most sort of dangerous and poverty stricken and troubled countries, um, I probably was at times more frightened and better looked after than in any other country. So I suppose the the extremes kind of marry together the extremes in sort of you know help that's out there from well-meaning strangers tend to go hand in hand with the extremes of challenges along the way and if you live in a country where you have less of the extremes of problems for example britain uh you're probably going to get less of the extremes of kind of um uh, unsolicited kindness and help throughout africa obviously it varies from country to country, but which was the toughest country that you dealt with during your journey? Um, yeah, it was probably Ethiopia. Uh, the Just because of the hostility that I encountered from some people in rural areas that 
uh, exhibited in the form of throwing stones or on one occasion getting beaten up by a bit of a mob um, which wasn't much fun middle of the night um, but uh, those I also feel you know compelled to point out those were relatively isolated incidents and you know I would happily go back to Ethiopia um, that was an experience at that time I'm sure that if I went back again now I'd have a different experience you you mentioned the DRC as well and you did a separate uh challenge there didn't you in 2014 where you traveled by canoe across the lilia river was it yeah the lulua um a a friend and myself uh he, he came to join me for that stint across drc so that was about three months um we we kind of cycled we crossed the border from zambia into the south of uh drc and then cycled west along this road as far as it would take us. But then the road just continued into Angola where we couldn't get visas for. So we kind of painted ourselves into a corner. Uh, but in this southwest corner of the country was um, this river, the Lulua, which is a, a tributary of the Kananga, which is a tributary of the Congo. Um, so it's a small river, um, but small is a very relative term in Central Africa. Um, so we bought for about 120 pounds, if I remember correctly, we bought a pirog, um, as it's known locally, or a dugout canoe, as we'd call it, essentially just a tree trunk with the inside hollowed out into the shape of a canoe. This thing was about six meters long, and we were told about 40 years old, a few cracks and leaks that had to be kind of shored up before we set off. And the plan was just to go down the river as far as we could, frankly, or until we reached another road. And we didn't really know where that would be. Uh, we didn't have accurate maps of the area. Um, so we loaded it up. But while we were doing so, the whole village gathered around us, sort of tutting and shaking their heads. And someone stepped forward and said, yeah, you know, this isn't a good idea. There are there are rapids and there are waterfalls. And these canoes are not particularly manoeuvrable. They sit very low in the water. Once you're in the water, you've only got perhaps two or three inches of clearance um, you know, above the water um and uh there are also hippos and crocodiles so you know you guys will drown or get eaten either way you'll be dead in a day or two um but we didn't really have any other option and we were quite excited about the idea of this kind of river adventure uh, and we spent a month barreling down this river which was pretty fraught um i think it was probably somewhere in the region of three four hundred miles we were never quite sure because the river just looped and snaked and arched back on itself all day um and yeah we we got hurled down sets of rapids we had to get the odd sort of you know remote um uh villagers to help us carry our quite heavy um uh canoe down um you know down sets of or, or around waterfalls um we saw a five meter long crocodile that had just been killed by a village um one night a hippo walked between our two tents um it was yeah there was there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of problems to overcome there uh and finally we did reach another road and got into a town well, i say we reached a road we reached a sort of point where there was a footpath our canoe had become so battered that it was just taking on water at a ridiculous pace um and we'd come to a section of rapids that was over a mile long in which time the river dropped about 40 or 50 meters which is a lot um so at that point we gave our canoe away to some some kids who were fishing uh who lived at that point 
um, and walked, carried our bikes for half a day along some footpaths to a point where eventually we could um, sort of push them and then cycle them on sandy tracks and finally reached a town then finally reached a, a city where the timing was lucky because at that point I collapsed into bed with quite a bad case of, uh, I had malaria and typhoid, like a malignant malaria as it's known, quite a severe form and typhoid fever at the same time. So it was sort of, I found out later it was probably quite touch and go, but at the time I was just on a lot of intravenous drips in a Catholic mission, um, slightly out of it and not really knowing how uh, how serious it might have been. What was the medical medical care like, um, you know, in this like remote region? Um, had we not managed to get to this city where there was uh, a Catholic mission, um, I think it, it, we could have it could have been a real problem. Actually, I'm not necessarily sure I'd be here. Um, even there, it was so we just turned up at the Catholic mission. I'm not a Catholic. Um, but we just turned up and said like we will pay you but can you <laughs> find some help um and they got this this nurse who uh gave me a couple of um uh iv antibiotic sort of drips each day um for about 10 days or so and i slowly got better but the the care was pretty rudimentary um the sometimes he reused the same needle when he came back in the evening you know and it had just been sort of hanging over the mosquito net for the afternoon um in a dusty room um yeah so it was i mean it was it was fine he knew what he was doing but also sort of resources were tight i guess i don't know yeah well you can, i can imagine resources were probably quite tight in a catholic mission but so the after the congo you then went was did you then go on to finish this four and a half year bike ride yeah so after the congo i continued up through the rest of central africa um and then in cameroon sadly i sort of reached essentially a dead end all the borders were closed around me one due to um civil war in central african republic one due to um sort of boko haram insurgency in niger and then the next border where i planned to go through to nigeria suddenly closed down due to ebola um this was summer 2014 um, and suddenly all of West Africa just became this kind of hopscotch mosaic of closing borders and infected countries. So sadly, I flew from uh, Cameroon over to Dakar in Senegal, where I cycled up the rest of across the Sahara and through Europe back to England and uh, finally got to the end of that quite long journey. The end of the journey when you got home, what were, what was that moment like? And then also, what was the day after like? Because a lot of people tend to get that reverse culture shock because they've been away for so long and then being back to what we deem normality can be quite taxing and quite hard. Yeah, I had expected it to be more difficult, frankly. And originally, I think I was so, I was ready for it to be over. The last couple of months, I probably could have done without. After Congo, I never really got particularly well again. I had um, some sort of uh, stomach problem um, C. diff it's called where all the like bacteria in your stomach is just gone and you've got no so your stomach can't process stuff well but so I had that while cycling something like 6,000 miles um so yeah it's not ideal um and so I was ready to get home but at the same time 
the last few years had been a case of just constantly adapting to new situations new places new circumstances and coming home felt a little bit like that although just a bit less of an adaptation because i knew you know it, things have changed a fair bit since i'd gone to be fair and i, I probably had as well but i have I had this um sort of homecoming party i arrived in london and at a it'd been sort of arranged by friends and family at a certain hour i had to arrive at a certain place and everyone came to sort of welcome me back and we had a big party that night and you know lots and lots of drinks and you know celebrating me back my last 30 quid in the world i think went behind the bar that night um but uh you know you say what the next day was like well actually the next day i you know everyone else would have been hung over somewhere and i got up and cycled the final 100 miles down to the village that i grew up in um for the next two days just kind of slightly somberly under gray november skies um got down to my parents home i didn't have a home you know at this point even though i was in my late 20s um got home and uh just very quickly started looking for a job i didn't really give myself time to dwell on it i needed to earn some money i needed to start doing something so i just kind of i didn't i didn't particularly linger on the idea of what the, the i guess the momentousness of having finished the journey it just sort of slipped by me a little bit and it was only later that I started to sort of reflect on these things once I found a bit more time to do so. So what year is this? So what sort of time frame are we on here? This is the end of 2014. Okay, so the end of 2014 and then your next big challenge was three years later, wasn't it? Which was the Eurasia border. Uh, yeah, I guess about two and a half years. That It was at the start of 2017. February 2017 so uh, two two and a quarter years later yeah did you struggle to spend that long at home given that you'd spent the past four and a half years constantly moving um it's a good question I did quickly get a bit itchy footed um but within about a month of getting back I managed to get a job at a uh, like a tour operator um and they sent me off to china to sort of do a bit of a recce so i spent i think nearly a month kind of drifting around bits of china and i wasn't there all that long finally i um i handled in my notice after eight months or something and then flew to kenya and spent two months living cheaply there writing the first draft of my first book so i was traveling and then and then during the year that followed the first year that i was kind of a a freelance i guess i i started giving presentations and continued working on this book during that year i went and did tour guiding in iran and central asia so i quickly found ways to to travel again although not quite on an expedition as it had been before until i went off on this journey in 2017 so the eurasia border i that's probably the most interesting one to me because a lot of it you're spending along that sort of russian border is that right uh well I was, I was in russia for about five months on this journey sort of going across the middle of russia um down the ural mountain range starting up on the arctic coast um myself and a friend skied uh for three months down the ural mountains and then in the southern foothills of the ural mountains is the source of the ural river um and we kayaked for, in a tandem kayak for 1500 miles down that river to the caspian sea so we sort of cut a line north south across russia and kazakhstan um 
which yeah that line is the border of it's kind of deemed the geographical border between europe and asia but of course it's not it's not it's not really a border um it's a academic concept if anything yeah the so you you obviously said you did a triathlon so what were the modes of transport for this it was skiing skiing kayaking and then from the um the river mouth on the caspian sea back uh west to istanbul we cycled okay such an interesting way of getting around like we so cross-country skiing how how much distance were you covering a day um it varied i mean at the beginning really not very much like seven miles or something we had these heavy sleds behind us but more than that it was sort of minus 40 degrees and um the days were still very short you know the daylight hours we were probably about 200 miles north 250 miles perhaps north of the arctic circle um so that yeah well also just the weather was atrocious for i mean during those three months i would say we on average saw the sun once a week um and it wasn't sort of howling wind probably one day in 10 um but for the other nine days we were just and and all the wind came out of the south and we were going into the south so we would just be slowly trekking on on our skis through mountains without really a route no obviously no pistes or anything there's no one for sometimes hundreds of miles around um so we were just kind of having to try and find a route um avoid avalanches and and make very slow progress but the you know as the journey went on as our loads got lighter as we got fitter as it got less cold the days got longer as well um we were getting up towards sort of uh 20 miles uh in a day touch more perhaps um but it, you know it varied day to day when you're in these really remote places like you know siberia um mongolia and you're yeah you're with a friend but you you both together you're very alone do you get a sense of comfort in being alone or do you struggle with it at times yeah, so I, it, it depends a lot whether you're actually by yourself alone or if you're part of a team of two or more people. Um, and I used to really struggle with being alone, particularly um, when I was 23, towards the beginning of that long bike ride. I cycled across Tibet in the middle of winter and the, it was a very untraveled road. There was, you know, sometimes I'd go a week without seeing a single vehicle. There was just no one and nothing. There were no settlements really. Um, and the temperatures was down to sort of down to the minus 30s even minus 40 i think at some points uh and i wasn't well equipped i got frostbite and every, you know kind of everything went wrong it was a really hard time and i i found the loneliness crippling i really struggled from it um but over the years and over different journeys and i think age probably helps with this a little bit as well i've come to be uh comfortable and even eventually happy by myself um i mean on my latest trip uh up in siberia i found the you know the time out by myself was you know it was it was really nice you know so, solitude and loneliness are arguably two sides of a coin and it's just trying to sort of you know manipulate your mind so that that coin falls the right way for you and it is a bit of sort of mental self-trickery arguably but um with practice it definitely gets easier do you find the noise of Western civilization to sometimes be too much? And is that why you do the challenges that you do? Um, 
Yeah, I'd say I probably do. Um, maybe it's not necessarily that I find it too much, but I have now the experience over the years of when you remove that noise, it's a nice thing. So it's not like I'm suffering or struggling with, you know, I, I when I when I am at home, I work often from home. Um, you know, I'm in in my home. I can avoid the noise if I want to. It's harder to avoid, I guess, the internet and phone and whatever else. Um, but when that is suddenly all removed, you whip that away. It's it is transcendent. It's really really nice. And uh, I don't I don't think I necessarily crave getting rid of all that stuff but i just know how nice it is and how good it is for me when i do it so i i do try to continue doing it but that's i guess like a side motivation to all the other things we discussed earlier 2022 you did this sort of hike ski across uh northeastern siberia so where did the idea of this trip come about um i think i'd always been quite interested in Siberia and and generally in the kind of outer regions of the USSR away from the kind of western european uh, western russian heartlands of moscow and petersburg and wherever else um but uh I, i've become quite interested in the people the indigenous peoples living up you know the northern peoples um reindeer herders and cattle breeders and ice fishermen and that sort of thing and i was aware that uh i mean siberia is covered in massive rivers three of the world's i think four of the world's 10 longest rivers are in siberia uh most of which people i mean who's heard of the yenisei the ob the lena um you know the, these aren't the kolima the, these are rivers that most people just will never come across um but in winter when these rivers freeze over and they freeze um obviously more the further north you go but even way deep down for thousands of miles, you know, for two or 3,000 miles, these rivers freeze for reliably for six months, sometimes seven months of the year. And in winter, suddenly these rivers become sort of ice highways. They are, uh, you know, a means of getting around from A to B. Um, so much so that on some of them, a kind of a road is sort of ploughed or cleared in the snow and um trucks for three or four months through the winter will ferry goods up and down driving on these rivers which are frozen perhaps two to three meters thick um and, and in, in you know in summer those rivers are navigable um so boats can ply them there's that kind of shoulder season in spring and autumn where for perhaps a month or six weeks the ice breakup means they're completely unnavigable and all these communities dotted across this region sparse these regions quite sparsely become very cut off for a little spell anyway i was i was aware of all this and i wanted to you know get up visit uh yakuzia this region in far east siberia um and so the the walk was again a way of getting to these small villages of sacha and ivenki people living up there um but i also had i guess got more experience in cold temperatures and yakuzia is the world's coldest inhabited region um the coldest temperature ever recorded there was just close to where I started my hike, about 30 miles away from it. Um, and that was quite a while ago, but that was um, minus 67.8 degrees, which is sort of mind-blowingly wow. cold. Um, cold. Yeah, sort of thing. If you stood in front of a metal wall and spat at it, your spit might freeze, bounce back off and hit you in the face. It's, yeah, it's really that cold. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that was the plan. Get up there and hike from this town called Batagai 
up to a town on the coast called um, Tixi, a port town. Um, and between A and B, I would meet um, not many, but some people and just get a little bit of insight into their sort of lives and their traditions. You took a voice recorder with you, didn't you? And it's quite interesting that for this one trip, you'd taken a voice recorder, given some of the stuff you recorded, because I listened to the four-part series that you put out on the Adventure Podcast. And the probably the most interesting bit, which obviously you'll get into, was your interactions with the police. And I'd say for me, the most interesting one of them was where the policeman is getting you to sign a document and is saying, it basically says, you speak Russian, you understand Russian, so you don't need a translator. And he's having to translate this to you. Yeah, I mean, he had, to, he had to write that down in block. I mean, all of Cyrillic is basically block capitals in um, bureaucratic processes, but he had to write that down in sort of Cyrillic block capitals for me to copy out. A bit like a kid kind of stenciling letters when they're too young to write and their parents are trying to teach them with dotted lines. Um, yeah, I mean, it was fast school, but in, in that um, sort of interaction, I suppose you've got a neat um, convergence of like, Russian jobs worth bureaucracy and uh, the Russian state's kind of lack of uh, shits to give about the concept of truth and verity. So how many, how long into the trip were you before there was an interaction with the police? Uh, about one month. Okay, so they actually left you alone for a while before. I just didn't come across any police. I mean, the first policeman I met on the trip, um, you know, find me. <laughs> Um, and then the next one I met uh, arrested me. So, you know, I had very little interaction with the police, but um, there was a pretty much 100% hit rate. <laughs> so they were keeping tabs on you from the when they arrested you then? Yeah, there was just no police presence where I was. So um, through the uh, local people, the non-police that I met along the way, um, they, as it turned out, and as I became increasingly aware of as the journey unfolded, um, they were all sort of um, essentially informing, reporting back to the FSB as to my whereabouts, things I said, people I spoke to, things I did. Um, so, you know, I was kind of tracked from afar. Did that change the way you went about the trip then as you were going along? Yeah, I grew more and more cautious i mean the big the big thing we should point out is like shortly after i arrived in russia the invasion of ukraine began so um arguably it was foolhardy to stay in the country and continue with the journey but i didn't go out there knowing that russia was about to become uh that much more of a kind of you know, essentially a terrorist state um but i as, as the journey unfolded and as um i heard you know i was pretty much out of communications but as i heard snippets of the atrocities in Butcher and various other things, I realized that my uh, presence in the country was growing ever more precarious and I had to be careful. Um, and, you know, the way I paid attention to that was by, um, you know, when I'd finished with filling up a little SD card on the dictaphone that I was recording on, I would hide the SD card, you know, quite well among my belongings. I uh, I didn't hide my journal that I wrote in every day, but I did photograph every page of it and keep updating that, photographing these pages and then hiding the SD card from that elsewhere as well. Um, so uh, I was kind of taking precautions again. I think I probably was preparing to 
have my belongings searched and taken and be kicked out of the country. I certainly wasn't preparing for worse than that back at that time. So then just tell the story of then what ensued from that moment, the first arrest from the police to then obviously what happened. Um, so when I arrived in Tixi, this port town up on the north, I'd been hiking for about two months at that point and um, everything had gone kind of well up to that point. You know, I'd, I'd met interesting people. I'd had a very interesting, quite unique, I think, opportunity as arguably one of the last tourists in Russia um, to kind of meet normal Russian people living far from the front lines and gauge their opinions about this um, sort of war taking place and unfolding. But I, I was very careful to pretty much not probe and not question. I would just let the topic come up naturally in conversation and then respond to people's questions and then see what they would say to that, really. Um, but on arrival in Tix, well, not on arrival in Tixi, the day after I arrived in Tixi, from where I was due to fly back down to the capital, Yakutsk, and then out of the country, um, the, the, the day after I arrived, there was a knock at the door of the apartment that I had rented for a couple of nights, and there was a couple of policemen there, and they said, you need to come to the station for registration. And you know, obviously I had no choice, so I went along to the police station, and in the police station, it slowly sort of transpired that I was under arrest. And there was quite a few hours of questioning and back and forth. And then eventually they took me to court at 9.30 at night. They went and sort of you know, dragged the judge out of his flat. And he seemed pretty resentful of the whole thing. Um, so the judge, uh, it, I, I, was, um, I was taken to court for conducting journalism on a tourist visa for asking provocative questions about the special operation in Ukraine and for photographing restricted military sites. And I just, I mean, the, the, the first two things they could at least kind of justify with their fake witness accounts. The third thing, they never provided any evidence, despite going through all my camera and my photos and everything. They never produced any evidence for that. Um, but I was found guilty. I wasn't given a lawyer. Um, much of the court proceedings weren't sort of translated. I speak some Russian, but not really court legalese. Um, so I was found guilty and flown back down to Yakutsk with a, um, an escort, a guard. Um, in Yakutsk, they put me in a detention centre and said that, that I was going to be deported, but they just didn't tell me when. Um, so for the following, what turned out to be month, I sat in, in a cell in Yakutsk, just kind of waiting for something to happen, um, getting increasingly nervous and eventually almost at times convinced that I was going to get tried again with some other crime uh, under a new law they'd brought in that gave a sentence of up to 15 years for um, journalists spreading quote unquote fake news about the war in Ukraine. Um, so all the, you know, all the things that they had accused me of and found me guilty of already were pretty much requisite to get me put in prison for 15 years. Um, so that was, yeah, it was quite a long nerve-wracking frightening sort of weight and eventually they did just deport me um and i guess it was just like the slow clunky cogs of uh of post-soviet democracy sort of churning through and eventually i was spat out the other side and sent home did you ever think you would become a political pawn for russia given like Brittany griner spent i think it was 10 months in prison there's multiple British soldiers who are over there at the minute who are on long sentences and in these sort of uh, work camps in the outback of nowhere. We don't know where they are, what they're doing. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I did worry about that. And there were times when um, when I sort of thought that's what was happening or was going to happen. Um, we, and by we, I mean myself and my sort of partner and family, um, did our best to keep it quiet, to keep it out of the press in the UK. Um, had the British media got hold of the story with the best intentions in the world that oxygen of publicity probably would have alerted kind of central government in moscow to the fact that, that I, I, don't, I don't think they were i mean russia is is you know is a federal republic and the of course it's got an incredibly tight sort of central government that is you know an authoritarian dictatorship that it sort of you know controls and oversees everything but when it comes down to what is essentially bureaucracy it is quite sort of you know broken up and localized and i just don't think it ever really got across anyone's desk in moscow that there was some you know tourist in far east siberia who had been accused of essentially spying um and so uh had it had it got into the media back home and had there been some sort of you know outcry um i mean i, I thought quite a lot about um nazanin zagari ratcliffe um, who got released shortly after actually I think she might have got released while I was in prison or shortly after I was in prison in Russia um, but she she spent something like was it five or six years in a prison in Iran and she probably wouldn't have but it got into the news in the UK and then Boris Johnson bumbled in with his fuck wittery and um said that uh she you know she she didn't do anything wrong she was just teaching local people journalism which she wasn't she was there just to visit family on holiday uh and so the government seized on that and said oh well, she's a journalist and she's not allowed to be a journalist here and blah 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 um so thankfully we managed to keep it quiet the mirror got hold of the story and and that was it uh thankfully it didn't balloon beyond that um so i think that that helped avoid the prospect of becoming a political pawn. How how did the mirror get a hold of the story? Because it's kind of, if you're only telling obviously family, there's not really anyone there that can get a hold of it. There was one day, uh, about a week after I was locked up, where um, at about four in the afternoon, I was suddenly woken up. I was just asleep on my on my sort of bunk. Um, I was woken up, handcuffed, taken out of the cell and um, sort of led into a little room where they already had a camera rolling. They never asked my permission, but I was interviewed by, I mean, essentially kind of um, interrogated by local um, state-owned media. Um, and so that went out, They they that was posted on YouTube as well. And I think a local Russian stringer journalist picked that up and then sold it to the Mirror back in the UK. Oh wow, that it's insane! Like the thought of, you know, you're just going away for this sort of expedition, sort so to speak. You know, minding your own business, and then all of a sudden you're caught up in kind of a political storm as a result of the war. And do you believe the propaganda that the Russian citizens? Uh, sort of surrounded by do you reckon that had sort of a, anything to do with it um i don't think the propaganda and its effect on the local people i came across had anything to do with me getting locked up i think that 
largely goes comes down to Russia's sort of eternal state of paranoia and suspicion within the authorities. Um, you know, a foreigner in... I mean, the, the region I was in used to be um, a restricted zone where you had to get sort of... It's quite hard to get special permission to visit permits and stuff like that. And one year before I visited, they, de they declassified it. So it suddenly was free to visit. And I was like, great, well, now I can go and visit. Um, but even after that, yeah, was the case and they no longer ostensibly have anything to hide of course they're still just apparently you know what's a foreigner doing why would they want to come to this shithole in their eyes you know most people up there don't particularly want to live there certainly not the police you know for the police that's a not a great posting um so i think that yeah i think they're just forever suspicious of foreigners and westerners and once the war began that kicked into overdrive okay so the moment you got released, well, you got on that flight home, but I've heard what you, you sort of felt as you got on the flight and you left Russia, but the moment you arrived home to family, how did that feel? Yeah, amazing. Um, my, uh, my partner and an uncle came and picked me up at the airport and we went back to my uncle's house, had breakfast um then my girlfriend had to go to work and i went home to to sort of you know familiar nice empty flat on a sunny late may day um and then i didn't really know what to do with myself i sort of unpacked i cleaned up all the bits of kit that i'd got out the country some stuff sadly remains in russia i'm hoping to get hold of some of it someday um so i sort of cleaned and organized and packed everything up and packed it away and then i thought well i guess i probably go for a run because I've been in a cell for a month you know I could do with some exercise you know it was even walking through the airport I felt a bit kind of stiff and you know in the in the cell I would walk back and forth each day but I was just walking I did loads of sit-ups and press-ups but that's very you know nothing for my legs I suppose um and so I went for a run and after about two kilometers I was in crippling pain I had to sort of turn around and kind of hobble back home um and it was all it was all just very surreal I guess it was just kind of like back into normal life two days later i was at a wedding with lots of friends i hadn't seen for a decade who, who none of whom were really at all aware of what had just happened except for the the bride and groom who had got this cryptic message saying um charlie might not be able to come to the wedding can't really tell you why um so yeah and you know then the next week i was busily at work um you know I, i'd had to you know i'd missed work i'd missed um presentations things got cancelled while i was um, locked up so I just kind of had to get back to life and it's I guess more so now now it's come to the process of writing a book about these experiences which I'm doing at the moment um, that I do dwell a little bit more on you know what happened what could have happened what didn't happen um, what should or shouldn't have happened and 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 yeah the reflection I think you know getting on to what about 10 months after I got out um it's uh, quite a different thing. Yeah. So the, I think the thing I want to ask is because you've spent so much time doing these different expeditions over the years, probably accumulatively over seven to eight years you've spent on these expeditions. What are the, what have you learned from them and what are like the three main takeaways you've had from these experiences? Um, I guess the first is 
the world is a lot more sort of friendly and nurturing than we often allow ourselves to think you know the there have been many probably countless times over the years where i've got in real trouble in the middle of nowhere or in a populated place wherever and there's always there's pretty much always someone who who will just help you out you know when you are at your lowest ebb in so many parts of the world there are people who will help pick you up and sort of send you on your way again um whether that involves just you know sitting with you for a meal and having a chat or whether that involves taking you in for the night or giving you shelter from the elements or whatever it is you know people are kind um the second i would guess is i i mean i am not a and i stand by this despite the trips i've been on over the years i am not an athlete I don't really, I mean, I, I go for jogs and I like rock climbing, but beyond that, I don't like train. I don't go to a gym. I don't do, unless I'm in a Siberian prison, I don't do sit-ups. Um, I'm, I'm a relatively physically, I'm an incredibly unremarkable person. But if you start trying to do things that you perhaps might initially think are sort of beyond your physical scope, you very quickly find that your physical scope is much greater than you ever had. And the same really goes, I suppose, with with the mind, as, as cliche as it might sometimes seem. See, uh, seem. Uh, the things that we, the things that scare us, are often a lot more easily overcome. The things that um, that we yeah, I mean, if you fear something, normally uh, an encounter with it quickly shows you that it's not as, you know, not as insurmountable as we originally think. Um, and a third thing, let's have a think. Um, a third thing is don't fuck with the Russian authorities. <laughs> um, not that that's something that I've tried to do over the years, but I have been to court in Russia, I think three times now or four four times now. Um, I've had a number of fines, uh, on different journeys in Russia as well, and they'll always find something on you. Um, so yeah, I mean, I got a lot of, um, kickback after leaving Russia this time. A lot of sort of, you know, strangers felt, um, compelled to either get in touch personally or sort of post publicly that, you know, when you're in another country, obey the rules. And the sad irony of that is I did obey the rules. Um, it's just, they, either they changed the rules while I was there and they made up things that I did. So it wasn't a case of that, but I, I, I suppose I have learned that, uh, you do have to keep a close eye on the changing circumstances around you. Do you think as Westerners, we are too quick to judge the cultures and, uh, the traditions of these more remote regions? So for example, in Mongolia, I know the way they cook their food and some of the food they eat like is very different to how we as Westerners would, you know, cook our food and eat what we would actually eat of an animal. Like they are very much that everything of an animal gets used. So do you think we are too quick to judge these, you know, more remote civilizations? Absolutely. And I, you know, I think with, with the example you've given, I think the Mongolians would be, um, not only, uh, welcome but right to judge us for our wasteful use or lack of use of you know many bits of an animal um yeah no i i think it's it it's people tend to judge what they don't know or don't understand which is completely normal and 
that's universal. That's not just a sort of a, you know, um, privileged Western trait. Um, but uh, I think if people take the time and, and, you know, most people given the time and the effort to learn about and understand something probably will hopefully cease to judge. There are certain exceptions or caveats I would give to that. Um, I, I mean, there are certain, I mean, I guess as Americans or as the American constitution, we call it inalienable rights, like human rights. I, you know, I, I certainly don't think we're too quick to judge things like uh, FGM or the effective enslavement of women or slavery itself, or, you know, there's, there's lots of things that um, happen in different pockets of the world, including in Europe, in North America, um, that, you know, that we're right to judge. I suppose it's just when we judge things merely because they're different as opposed to them infringing on an individual's right to kind of, you know, health and happiness, uh, then, uh, yeah, that's the case. You said on Chris Williamson's podcast that you want, when you were younger, I think about 22, you said to yourself that you wanted to make, you wanted to stamp your mark on the world. So do you think you've done that? <laughs> Good question. Um, I, I hope I have started doing so. I, I also hope I haven't finished doing so. But then again, we, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think I said that to highlight the kind of um, hubris and arrogance of my early 20s self um we all stamp our mark on the world in different ways and i and i guess i hope that the thing that i've left behind so far is a, a couple of decent books for people to read and hopefully more of them to come in the future um and if that is my mark then yeah i'm happy with that yeah um so what's next what's the next challenge or have you not thought of that yet um i've got a few ideas kicking around and i've got a space that i've cleared a, a sort of slot in my schedule that i've cleared um later this year in which to do something um but as i haven't yet booked flights and fully decided what it's going to be of the sort of options i'm going to keep that under my hat for the time being um okay. but watch this space and at cw explore on social media would be the best place to uh, to be informed first yeah i'll definitely be watching out for that one um one final question then is how would you like to be remembered uh god that's a your first your top and tail questions are tricky ones <laughs> um i don't i mean having just spoken about stamping your mark and being happy to leave behind books put all that aside i don't think i really care like once i'm gone then i'm i mean i don't believe in an afterlife i'm not going to be i don't believe i'll be looking down or up at other people remembering me so I can't, i'm not really fast you know unmarked grave cardboard coffin you know back to the roots so where can people find you and uh, sort of support you follow your stuff what you're doing uh, my website is cwexplore.com. Um, my social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is all at cwexplore. And uh, that's where I, where I post. Charlie, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Ethan. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Charlie Walker. For me, that was a really interesting one. I'm absolutely obsessed with stories like his where... People spend years abroad, on their own, you know, on these random expeditions and adventures. So it was a really good one for me to, to interview Charlie, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Remember, 
Check out his links in the description below and also support the podcast by liking, subscribing and following on all platforms. So thank you and I will see you next Monday for another episode.